Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. With Capella University's FlexPath learning format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Stansberry Radio Network. Hey, this is James Altucher. Hey, how are you? Good, good. How are you? I am good, thank you. Now, uh, Jane, I'm sorry to call you Jane. Do people call you Governor? Um, some people call me Governor, and I tell them all to call me Jane. Okay, good. Because I have to, can I make a confession to you? Sure. So, um, um. You know I'm not a priest or anything, right? I know you're not a priest, yes. Okay. You were the, the governor of Massachusetts from 2001 to 2003. And yep. here, here's the issue. You are like the only governor in the history of the world who is not on Wikipedia or anywhere else. I am too on Wikipedia. I could not find you. You're like really hard to find. And I would think. Oh, Google Jane Swift governor. You know what? Maybe I even had your last. The first hit is Wikipedia. You know what? And a bunch of unattractive pictures. You know what? I bet you I had your last name wrong. I had Jane Smith. See? <laughs> See that that You're would right. make it really hard to find me. But I'm glad we cleared that up before we started the interview. No, I have. I'm recording, so I'm just totally making a fool of myself in front of my audience. <laughs> <laughs> so, 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 okay. But I, I have learned about you. Um, and your birthday is the same day as my daughter's birthday. So I'm also very happy to interview you. That's so, great, Pisces. Yes, we have, a, we have a lot in common now. Um, but I have to say, you're like also, uh, an amazing person. Like you've done so many different things, but A, you were a governor, you were pregnant while governor and had twins while governor. Am I correct? Yeah. And now since then you've done all of these from nonprofit to for-profit uh, educational ventures. And I want to talk a lot about that because uh, I'm really interested in the state of education in, in the U.S. But if it's okay with you, I want to kind of first talk about uh, being governor because that sounds cool to me. Sure. So so um, how did you, first off, back in 2001, what happened? Like, how were you, you were a lieutenant governor and then what happened? So I was fortunate enough to serve as Lieutenant Governor with Paul Salucci, who unfortunately has since passed away. Um, but Governor Salucci and I had a professional relationship predating um, our running on the same ticket. In fact, I had served in the state Senate where he had been a member. I uh, helped the administration that he was a part of. Uh, to pass uh, some laws, and we had just developed a deep respect for each other. And he invited me 
to run with him in the first election where he ran for a full term, and that was in 1998. And in fact, uh, and um, consistent with the storyline, I was pregnant then too. Um, and so my first daughter was born uh six weeks before my first um, election to, well, not even six weeks, I guess, I guess I had to be like three weeks um, before my election uh, to lieutenant governor. And we served um, very collaboratively. He delegated a lot of important responsibility to me, including around education. And then in um, 2000, he had been a longtime supporter of uh, the Bush family and their political endeavors and was a strong supporter of then-Governor Bush's candidacy for president. And so he told me at a very funny uh, lunch meeting that I thought I had asked him to schedule with me and he thought he had asked me to schedule. And we sat down to lunch. We made small talk and a private lunch. And I was getting ready to share with him um, my very big news. Uh, and before I could get to it, he wanted to share with me, I think it was about a week before the 2000 election, that um, he believed that Governor Bush would win the election. And if he did, there was a strong probability that he would receive an appointment to that administration. Um, and therefore, I should start thinking through uh, what it would be like to be the first woman to serve as governor in Massachusetts, and also that if he and, uh, and, lost, and I'm sorry to interrupt, but also I should mention you you are you were the youngest, I guess, female governor in U.S. history. Yeah, I guess so, but that is probably a factor of there not being very many governors um, who are women. Yes, or not enough. So, um, but I was relatively young; I was 30. Six. A baby um, yourself. 35 maybe at that point. I don't remember. Uh, I think I might have been 35 at that point. Yeah. You know, then I hated it when people called me young. Now I crave attention to people telling me I'm young. But that's a uh, distraction from the story. So anyway, he told me all of this wonderful news, told me that, um, you know, if there was not a win for Bush and if John Kerry got appointed by Al Gore, if Al Gore won, um, that he would also consider appointing me uh, to the U.S. Senate. And to that point, Massachusetts didn't yet have a U.S. Senator. Um, and then I had to tell him um, that I also had wanted to have lunch because I was pregnant with twins. And, um, you know, there's a lot of discussion uh, today that continues. And I have three daughters, so I'm glad for the progress. But a lot of discussion that continues today uh, about the challenges and opportunities for working mothers uh, in our country, both from a policy standpoint, but also in having um, leaders who are willing to give enormous responsibility to working mothers. And that's not something you consistently find. And to his credit, uh, Governor Salucci at the time uh, he may have actually done a little bit of a double take, but just as he had responded, you mean he, he you mean he he threw up all over the table. He did not throw up. He actually was extremely supportive, just as he was supportive when I was pregnant during our entire campaign uh, for That's office good. in 1998. And 
I think not unrelated to the fact that he has two daughters um, and a very strong and successful wife. But I was just very, very fortunate throughout my political career to to have men who saw my passion for politics and more importantly for public policy, especially around education, and who believed in me and supported and encouraged me uh, to jump into the fray. It was, in fact, a state senator that I was working for in 1990 who tapped me on the shoulder and suggested that he um, was not going to run for office and that I should run in his place. And let me, and, let, so let me ask you that. Was, was the process of running like what you expected? Because it strikes me that once you enter the political machine, people have all sorts of like values and things they believe in and things and messages that they're uh, feel strongly about. But then when they're in the machine, it becomes yes. about fundraising and saying what other people want you to say. And, and it becomes very difficult. Although maybe for state Senate, it's a small enough constituency that that's that you can override that. Yeah. So I continue to teach a class at Williams College about political leadership and have current political leaders and others involved in the political process come in. So I know a lot has changed in 10 years. But I have to say that, um, first and foremost, I didn't um, feel turned off by the political process. In fact, um, my time running for office and serving in office uh, was some of the most rewarding, engaging, fulfilling work that I've ever done. And I also worked with, by far, some of the smartest, most passionate people you will ever meet. And so I bristle a bit. Um, at the sort of generally held notions that, you know, politics is a terrible business and everything is uh, corrupt or perverse, um, because that wasn't my experience. Um, having said that, you're correct. I was running for the first time for a state Senate seat. But, you know, I raised $60,000, which at the time was a lot of money for a state Senate seat in Western Massachusetts. But I raised it by working really hard to convince people that I would be the best state senator in the district. And some people, when I convinced them of that, could write me a $500 check or a $1,000 check, which was the limit at the time. Other people baked brownies every single Friday, and we would have these killer uh, bake sales in front of my office that only a candidate who comes from a large, close-knit Catholic family uh, could pull off um, and literally would have people who went to school with my parents or whose children went to school with one of my siblings who would show up every week and donate cookies or um, whoopie pies and we would sell those and we calculated that we made enough money every week on our bake sale to pay the rent and utilities for our entire office. Now, I know that's not a presidential campaign today, right. but... The concepts are the same. You have to convince people um, that you will be the best candidate. I think the big money that goes into politics around very specific issues that certain people make decisions around isn't good. Um, but fundraising in and of itself, I think, is a really important aspect of running for political office because I had to be really crisp and really convincing and really think through my position on all number of issues to convince people that a 25-year-old woman 
a couple of years out of college would be a better state senator than a seven-term incumbent lawyer state representative. And, and what inspired you as a 25-year-old to, to, to make that leap instead of going on to some other career venture? So, first of all, my father had been a volunteer in political campaigns, and I knew uh, politicians that I could look up to. The state senator uh, who I went to work for for a year was someone that my family and I supported. His predecessor um, was a wonderful, wonderful man, and my dad had served as his um, campaign manager. Um, It was really around a passionate belief that, a lot of 25-year-olds have, um, that I could make things better. And I love teaching at Williams because I think there are hundreds and thousands and probably hundreds of thousands of uh, college students and young adults just like me uh, who believe the same thing. For me, I had grown up in a blue-collar industrial city that it turns out had a pretty poor public education system. I didn't realize that until I went to a very competitive, uh, elite, small college in Hartford, Connecticut called Trinity, um, and was astonished that I was not the biggest rock star uh, on campus academically. Uh, My social skills actually held up pretty well, but academically, I had not been as well prepared as other students, and um, I believed then and continue to believe now that the key to the American experience, to the American dream, is giving everybody a high-quality education that will allow them uh, to be successful. I also grew up in a small business family, and at the time I ran, uh, the Massachusetts economy and fiscal situation was in pretty desperate shape, and so focusing on those issues, small business competitiveness and fiscal discipline were pretty key and those continue to be my core beliefs. So, to so, day. And I'm lucky to be able to continue to make a difference from a different seat on issues of educational excellence and access to opportunity. So, so when you first got into the governorship, it, it, it almost, it, it's, you didn't have time to kind of like relax and say, wow, I'm governor. Like you kind of went right into there and, and there was a shit you know, not only the economy at the time, but uh, 9-11 happened. The planes mm-hmm. lifted off from airports in, in, in Massachusetts. And you were, you were literally kind of on the equivalent of ground zero for Massachusetts as to how to deal with security, terrorism, everything. Like, what was going on? I want to ask you what was, what, how you felt and, and everything when you became governor. But what was going on on, on 9-11? Because you were there. So... Um... I don't think your program is long enough, although I appreciate this extended format to go into completely how I was feeling and what it was like on 9-11. But I will tell you one of the leadership lessons that I took from that is how critically important it is when you're making big decisions to have the right people around the table and that, well, sometimes, um, depending on the issue, the right people around the table are folks who you know well and trust uh, a great deal. At 9-11, I was fortunate enough to have a cadre of people uh, assembled who had deep subject matter expertise on an area where, frankly, I had very little. And so we had sort of two issues um, to deal with. One was electoral law, 
we were in the midst of a primary election, and there was a lot of disagreement among other constitutional officers as to whether or not we should spend the primary election to fill an open congressional seat. Uh, I exercised the bully pulpit. It's not clear I had the constitutional authority, but I uh, made the decision and announced it that we would not uh, close the polls and that we would stand up to tariffs. Um, and that was based on really good advice from the Democrat Attorney General who uh, counseled me well on that issue. And then, obviously, the safety and security issues. And whether it was the superintendent of the state police or the head of the firefighters union or the head of our emergency management, our public safety uh, individuals, they were a lot of folks who I hadn't uh, previously worked in any depth with, and I certainly had very little, uh, no, no experience um, or I, knowledge around domestic terror attacks. I think I think your leadership lesson is extremely important because this holds true whether you're an entrepreneur or an artist of some form or uh, you're building your relationships in life. The people you have around you are really the key to to success because that's. That's gonna that's gonna fill up all of your weaknesses and and bring you up in 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 many cases. Absolutely, and I've been reading up a lot about teams, and you know I try a lot to, um, and I'm not just scrambling to um, build the business of scaling uh, to figure out how to transfer the skills from politics and political leadership that I even teach about into the entrepreneurial um, forum. So, so I, I also want to reel back, like you became governor and by the way, I, I, as, as, as great as it is that Paul Salucci, you know, got an appointment with the Bush administration, is it really better to be ambassador to Canada than governor of Massachusetts? Well, he had been governor of Massachusetts. He had served as lieutenant governor for uh, a good period of time. And I think he would say it was a wonderful uh, a wonderful appointment that brought him a lot of opportunity and um, joy. Um, I was pretty happy being the governor of Massachusetts, and if I ever took an ambassadorship, I think I'd aim for a warmer country. <laughs> well, okay, so the day you become governor, you're, I think at the time you were also the youngest governor in the country, male or female. I, I might be mistaken, but... Uh, uh, Again, please keep mentioning how young I was because yes. now I crave that attention. It's amazing how young you were when you Thank were you. one of the most powerful people in the country. But uh, <laughs> what did it? I'm going to make my mother listen to this. And and this is just a naive like fanboy question, but what was it like to be like kind of the ruler of of one of the first states of the, the country for you know that that day? You were like king. <laughs> Um, or queen. So I, well, so luckily, again, I have this big uh, Catholic family that keeps me uh, pretty well grounded. The day we were doing the transfer ceremony, I was obscenely pregnant with twins. And the last person to speak to me before I descended this big marble staircase on live television with my older brother who said, there's no way you can walk down those stairs without falling. Oh my gosh. Were you scared? <laughs> 
Yeah, he doesn't remember it. I will never forget it. Um, So siblings uh, and now children, teenage girls, uh, keep you pretty humble. But, um, you know, I have always felt that um, I've been very, very lucky in my life and blessed with a bunch of opportunities. Um, I tend to outwork people. I will never be the smartest person in the room. Um, I probably will never be the thinnest person in the room unless I find uh, a really well-suited room. Um, But I often uh, hope that I work harder. Um, And as a working mother, I've learned a little bit to work hard and smart. Um, So I didn't spend a lot of time sort of reflecting Um, I spent a lot of time working to try to make a difference because I knew I had a short period of time guaranteed to me and a lot of things I wanted to accomplish. And I also had a toddler and twin, uh, infant twins for most of the time. So it it was hard to uh, find a lot of time for reflection on how cool was I. Right. And so obviously uh, at at some point I want to ask about, you know, that process of having twins and how you managed to kind of balance you know, when people talk about work-life balance, they're sort of like they're talking about they work at the factory and then they have kids and they have to have work-life balance. And you were governor and had to have work-life balance. But what 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 incidents were not incidents, but what issues do you think um, you you really feel you accomplished and you're proud of during your, your time as governor? You were governor from 2001 to 2003. Then yeah. Mitt Romney came along. But where, where do you feel you had impact? So three areas. So I was lucky enough that we were at the critical time of implementing some of the education reform that I had helped to create in 1993 when I was a state senator. And so it was the, when I was governor was the first year that Massachusetts students had to pass a comprehensive assessment test in order to receive their diploma. Uh, that was very controversial, but it was the right decision at the time. Okay, and, um, and I'm sorry to interrupt. I'm, I tend to be an interrupter, but I, I have a, I want to play a devil's advocate on that just for a second. Yep. I, I understand the need for an assessment test because you want to um, make sure people have a certain level of... Uh, it, it's hard to judge a large number of people without some standardization, but the standardization ultimately hurt the youth of America when you try so to have I think one standardization, test. I'm an interrupter too, sorry. So okay, I totally go for believe it. that standardization does hurt. And frankly, I will tell you that my position on testing um, then and now is different because our assessment system was developed over, I told you we developed the um, law in 1993 and it was 2002 before we held students accountable. We involved educators in a very comprehensive process of figuring out what do students need to know. And then we designed our own assessment system, not a standardized test that was very closely aligned to the curriculum that we had implemented across the state um, through comprehensive input with, uh, with educators. I think that is very, very different than a standardized test that is much more reflective of how many words your parents used when you were a baby or how much affluence you have. And so I actually would be happy to spend the rest of the show talking about testing and assessment because I think we somewhat lost our way as a country, but there is a rub, right? So I told you my 
motivation was I graduated from high school. I was in the top 10% of my class. I was pretty much all world in North Adams, Massachusetts. And I show up at Trinity College, which is a great school, but it's not Harvard, and realized I was probably in the bottom 20%. We have to solve for that problem. There has to be a systemic way to ensure that kids, no matter how rich or poor or in the right zip code their parents are, get access to the same level of education. And assessment is one way you can do that, um, measuring all students against the same expectation of what they'll need to know. Um, my husband and I were having a conversation this morning um, about, you know, a, um, an individual that uh, we come into contact with who's a single mother and very poor, and we were just talking about those people in our own life who never got the educational opportunity that we're, you know, working and bending over backwards to get to our kids and that I try really hard in my professional life to extend to as many students in the United States as possible the really tragic consequences and difficult lives that people lead when they don't get it. Having said that, there's no doubt in my mind the over-testing that's happening in some school districts that is in part engendered um, by poor leadership and deeply aided and abetted by uh, a zealous uh, commitment to testing um, in our public policy also doesn't result in the kind of great engaging personalized education that I want for my own kids. So um, I think you've struck on one of the most critical public policy issues. And unfortunately, like most public, tough public policy issues, I don't think there's a simple answer. I don't think it's more tests and I don't think it's less tests. I think it's better education aligned to high quality assessment. Yeah, and I, I, you make a really good point that, of course, people in, uh, like kid, kids in underprivileged situations just simply need access to education. And that's a huge win. Uh, no, but- they don't need access to education. They need access to the same type of high-quality, engaging education that you and I want for our children. Right. And that's a much harder thing to create. And at the same time, I wonder, like, let's say a young child is meant to be the greatest artist or musician or a ballerina or venture capitalist or whatever in the world, but but the school, but the, the way things are taught in school, there's just no way they can... Um, fit in, and so they're not going to do well on any assessment or standardized test or whatever. How do you deal with kids who are just just different but special? Yeah, so as life would uh, have it, um, I have three children, and uh, one of them um, learns very differently. And so I believe, first and foremost, all children can learn, and there are certain basic things, even great artists and great venture capitalists and great ballerinas need to know in a very competitive global economy. Like what? However, like what? Yeah. Basic math and computation principles, uh, how to analyze complex texts and uh, understand their meaning, how to be a good citizen, um, and, you know, go beyond Trumpism uh, and evaluate the quality of ideas of our leaders. Um, all of those, I think, are critically important, but there's lots of different ways that you can gain those skills. 
and a standardization of instruction, I think, is what you're really getting at is deeply problematic um, and in some cases an outgrowth of testing. And I uh, think there are a couple ways, frankly, to address that. First and foremost, uh, we need more choice, um, parental choice, uh, supported by our government in schools. There are great innovative schools um, that people with means find to send their children to. Um, and that is increasingly with charter schools and choice in some communities available to all parents, but by no means uh, is it available enough to students across the country. And so uh, providing an opportunity for parents to find that right learning environment for their child that is, does have high standards um, but also can truly personalize learning, I think it's critical. Um, my oldest daughter um, is a really strong natural math and science student, but reading was just painful to her. And um, we went through all the testing and everything she could read. She just didn't enjoy it. She hated doing analysis until we found a couple really special teachers and Last year, as a sophomore in high school, she had a young teacher who made it acceptable for every student to either read the book or listen to an audio uh, presentation of the book. Wow, that's and great. She, well, she won the English prize for her class. Wow. I did not get a picture because I knew that they were giving out prizes and I knew she was going to get one, um, but I was not ready with my camera when they started talking about English. And it was, that's just a little snippet of a story, but all kids can learn. Yes, you have to reach them in different ways, and all children have gifts that we have to access. But um, it's having an enriching and wonderful and uh, deep education, I don't think, is at odds with also making sure there are some critical academic skills that every child has to possess by the time they leave. No, and and I agree with you. Um, I I might err on the little side of homeschooling or unschooling, but that's not that's a choice that's not available to everyone. It's 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 it's, it's the same kind of mess of issues. Yeah, but, and so um, one of the things that Middlebury Interactive Languages, our terrific world language programs, are broadly adopted um, by homeschool audiences. So um, depending. Uh, what your ability is to teach Spanish or French or German or Mandarin, you should become one of our customers. Uh, yeah, maybe I will because my, my wife uh, is from Argentina and she's been begging me for six years to learn Spanish. And I've been thinking of using Duolingo to, to learn. So, so Duolingo is a great um, program for consumers. Um, our program is actually more geared towards your kids, but it sounds like your wife might be able to teach them Spanish. Oh, I am a child when it comes to learning languages, so I'll cry oh, okay. if I don't know a word. But, but uh, you know, your your daughter had an amazing experience where the teacher said, okay, you can use an audio book. And that, of course, is not uh, standardized or, or accepted. Although across. I will tell you, we are seeing, so this is from a... Um, not just a parental standpoint, um, and I do have three kids in uh, high school now, but also from a business standpoint, the speed of adoption of technologies that facilitate better learning and personalization in the classroom is finally starting to happen at scale in the United States. Well, and certainly our company is a beneficiary of that. 
Um, and I will, you know, continue to preach not just on behalf of uh, our company and the fact that we bring world languages into schools that otherwise would have a very limited uh, curriculum for students and languages, but there are all kinds of, I mean, audiobooks is just a really basic one. Um, there are all kinds of great technologies that schools are starting to adapt that really will help us to get to that deeply enriching uh, educational experience at scale for all students. Now, do you think there's any kind of, I don't want to sound like conspiracy theorist, but I look at my kids, my, so I have two daughters in high school, and I look at my kids' textbooks, and they have to carry them around in these big backpacks, and they're like 8,000 pages each. And I showed my daughter, look, on the kind, on Amazon, you can not only buy your textbook on Kindle, so you don't have to carry it around, but you can buy the teacher's edition and get all the answers to all the homework. So well, why don't but, you just... so my kids are in a Catholic school in Vermont, so this is not like the cutting, bleeding edges uh, you know, technology or progressivism. Um, and they just went to a one-to-one -one device, bring your own device in their school. Almost all of their textbooks now are available um, digitally online um, in the student version. And you're right. The, like, it sounds like a stupid thing, but I mean, we couldn't find a backpack big enough for my girls to carry when they had to carry all of their books. But they now are taking, you know, notes and, uh, Google Classroom, they're sharing their documents, they are submitting papers through Turnitin to make sure that they're not plagiarizing. Um, if it's happening in a Catholic high school in Vermont, there's hope. And we see it from a business standpoint that with the huge turnover of teachers, which is causing other um, challenges to quality education, you're having an increasingly young um, teacher workforce who are uh, able to integrate appropriately technology into the classroom to improve the experience for students. So, so you're, you're telling me more about kind of the impact you had as, as governor. Oh, right. So I got as far as education. And yeah, you, so you, got, you me. got to number and one. Two other issues. We talked a little bit. I do think um, calming the state and reforming our airport system um, and, and contributing in the national debate to the development of homeland security. Okay, um, so can I can I ask you about that? Sure. So so there's been a lot of argument, and and for instance, in the in the book Freakonomics, they did a whole study, or maybe it was Super Freakonomics, they did a whole study that the increases in airport security led to more people driving to long distances, led to more uh, traffic deaths than would have otherwise happened in plane accidents because planes hardly ever have any deaths other than yep. in a terrorist attack. So do you think we, the, as a state or as a country, we made a mistake going overboard on airport security? So I don't think we made a mistake. I now travel by air um, in the last couple of weeks, almost every week. So, you know, be careful what you wish for. I subjected myself uh, to a just not very fun experience going through security. And I probably am one of those people who, uh, you know, when it's a close call, I drive. I think the thing that those statistics don't take into account is the psychological trauma of another air attack on U.S. soil 
and what that would do to our economy. That's hard to quantify. Right, but that but, psychological trauma, isn't that, and I hate to use the Bill Maher phrase, but isn't that like we let the terrorists win? By that- it absolutely is, and I think our political leaders have to be, I mean, there's a huge impact on the economy. If we measure consumer confidence, you would have no consumer confidence, and while it may or may not be fair to say that every you know, president since Bush has to be responsible for making sure there's not another uh, 9-11 style airline attack, I think that's just the reality. Um, and and, 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 and your it would pri- just be deeply troubling to the U.S. So I think the airport security stuff is, I think it does catch some stuff. I don't think it's perfect, but I do think it was necessary. In the privileged position you were in, were you aware of anything else happening either that day or in the months or years afterwards that uh, did test the system that the nation doesn't really know about? Well, I think the nation knows about it, but maybe not as quickly or to the degree I did. So the shoe bomber um, tried to blow up an airline. Now he came from uh, another country, but he ended up landing at Logan, and they knew within moments that he had ties uh, to terrorists. And I think it was downplayed, frankly, more than um, the reality. Um, there were a handful of other things that I think were thwarted. I'm sure there have been many more um, that are not reported. I think that's a real challenge, frankly, of Homeland Security. The whole goal is to not make people feel so uh, unsafe um, as to disrupt our economy. And so you really can't count your wins. What, what's, um, because what's the you worst? would undo the public policy. What, what's the worst thing you heard about that, that maybe other people have heard about that was thwarted that wasn't really widely known? Um, you know what? Um, I don't think it, it's more just the, uh, so I don't know if it would have happened, but there was a lot of concern about um, attacks through the harbors. Um, and potential chemical weapons attacks in New York or the Boston area, which I think were very widely reported um, in the day, in the months, I guess, after 9-11. Um, you know, when you get a call from uh, the U.S. Attorney General um, telling you there's a lot of chatter and they can't give you more specifics, that's not a great way to spend the rest of your weekend. So, so here, here you are. You had just had twins, and the Attorney General of the United States is calling you, the governor of Massachusetts, and saying... And luckily, hey, I wasn't the leak. I think it was actually uh, another elected official who let that uh, word out. But, but, but the buck stops, stops with you when it comes to like what's going on in Massachusetts. And yep. were you scared? Um, I was worried. Uh-huh. I wasn't scared. I realized that I actually had the most powerful thing, which was information, which brings with it an obligation, but also power, right? And again, we had, you know, Massachusetts is a phenomenal state with deep resources, financial, um, intellectual. I had access to people to help me put in place uh, protections and plans um, and responses. Um, that I was fortunate to have. So, you know, we had a former uh, head of the, uh, you know, U.S. Air Force who helped us think through security at Logan Airport. We had, you know, the former 
uh, CEO uh, who had served in Vietnam but was the CEO of um, one of the large financial institutions in Boston uh, leading a task force about how to improve security. So I wasn't scared. I was often worried. And I um, realized that I had been given a privilege uh, to take care of and protect people that was um, quite, um, not really a burden, but quite a big responsibility at the time. And, and now nobody would ever say this to a man, but did people say this to you? Like, oh, she just had twins. We're going through the worst national disaster in U.S. history. Uh, maybe this is not for her because she's... She Ironically, that was the one time when people didn't say that. That's great. Um, and I remember going into my first press conference on the mid-morning, early afternoon of 9-11, and it was the least confident I ever felt on the inside. And if you read press reports, it was some of the most, probably the most highly regarded press conference from the press's perspective um, that I ever gave. Um, so I, you know, I prayed a lot that day. I realized that I had to make decisions and that no decision was worse than the wrong decision in some cases. Um, but it was a hard day. Well, I, I honestly can't even imagine, but, uh, but I, I want you to also say what now your third impact. So I spent a lot of time thinking about our child welfare system, which continues to be a challenge today. So children whose parents either can't um, or won't take care of them and the state's responsibility to protect them and keep them safe. And one of the things that I did um, there have been a lot of recommendations and we implemented many of them, but two things that I did, one was uh, to extend to any child who aged out of our foster care system the ability to uh, go to any college or uh, university in Massachusetts free uh, with wow. a full scholarship, tuition, room, and board to give them access to opportunity um, and the same opportunity we'd want to provide to our own children. But more importantly, I also unilaterally at the bargaining table um, gave significant raises to social workers um, in order to bring them up to uh, a more professional level of pay um, so that we could try to retain folks in what has to be um, to this day one of the most incredibly um, difficult jobs in public service and maybe in any uh, public or private setting in the U.S. are the social workers who deal with families in crisis and have to make gut-wrenching decisions about uh, whether or not to remove children from the setting they're in and then what to do with them. If our society has changed and a lot more women like me work, um, it's just really hard to find uh, warm, nurturing family settings to place deeply troubled children into we have to remove them from home. And and gosh, I, I agree with that so much. It's so good that you did that. Like I think kids in foster homes, there's such a wide range of experience and it's only the social workers who are kind of the determinants of when a foster home has gone over the line. And it's so important that you have good people there. But let me ask you about the college thing. 
what you kind of promising free college to p- kids who go through the foster care system, did that encourage colleges to say, hey, we've got to push back and now raise tuitions on middle class children who then might not have been able to afford it? So, no, um, although I think a lot and would love to engage in a deep debate about uh, the things that drive uh, increases in college tuition and like you, um, thinking about it even more deeply uh, with a junior and two freshmen in high school. But um, here's the sad, shocking statistics. So in Massachusetts, um, we have actually one of the best high school going to college rates in the country. I think it's somewhere around 70% of students who graduate from high school who matriculate within a year into some post-secondary institution. Do you want to guess what that percentage was at the time I was making this decision for foster children who aged out, so never permanently adopted, never reunited with parents? That's uh, that's incredible. So it was, so it was 4%. So 4%. So it's compared to almost every school that they were in where, you know, 60 to 80% of their peers were going on to school. So the, I have no idea actually, because I did it sort of during my term and nobody's ever reported back to me. I saw one great story actually in my local newspaper of a student who benefited, but in the first year it was going to cost all of a million dollars. Um, and that, compared to the, uh, you know, billion-dollar endowments at Harvard um, and the budgets, even, you know, tens of millions of dollar budgets of our state colleges and universities with a drop in the bucket. So yeah, like, it turned well, out to be one of those things that you could do without a huge fiscal impact. What do you think of the um, the argument that Harvard essentially is like a hedge fund with a college attached to it? <laughs> So I, um, I believe Harvard provides a phenomenal education uh, at many levels, um, but the degree to which um, their reliance on an investment um, arm is pretty widely written about in the Boston Press, and I think uh, an important thing for uh, individuals to know Um Frankly, I think either of us, if you know, we have a child who's lucky enough to get into Harvard, uh, we won't spend a lot of time criticizing them and we'll feel blessed that they did it. I spend, or uh, they have that opportunity. I, I try to spend more of my public policy brain worrying about um, all the kids who aren't and shouldn't go to Harvard and the affordability and the access that they need uh, to a high-quality college education. So, so um, I, I want to actually kind of reel ahead and get to what you're doing now, which is you've been you've been nonstop involved in education. Well, well, first off, after you left the governorship, they kind of dropped you off where they drop all ex Massachusetts governors where you you taught at the JFK school at Harvard. But, but, <laughs> yes, that is the uh, assured landing place. But I have to say, um, well, that like was before with... I got my full time teaching gig at Williams, teaching smart college students is a small amount of what I do um, every day, but I hope it will be one of the biggest lasting impacts I have because I have had some really bright, terrific kids who I think are going to change the world in much more emphatic ways than I ever did. 
But like at Harvard, were you like office mates with Michael Dukakis and William Weld or anything like that? <laughs> no. And so, again, those pesky children, I wasn't able to pick my children and my husband up and uh, work for free full time at Harvard for six weeks. So I would come in once a week and uh, they would put me up at a really nice hotel and only a mother with three children under the age of five can appreciate staying in a wonderful hotel all by herself that she's not paying for. So, so, okay. So now though, you're, you're still I had heavily to find involved. a real job. You're still heavily involved in, in education, obviously with, with yep. not only a real job, but you're, you're, you could potentially have substantial uh, impact on education still. Tell us about what, what, what you're working on right now. So today I run a company, uh, Middlebury Interactive Languages, that provides high-quality language learning opportunities to students um, in really two verticals. First and best known is our uh, digital curriculum that provides English language learning, which is a new line for us, as well as traditional world language learning for uh, Spanish French, German, Mandarin, and Latin to over 200,000 students across the United States. How do do you get those students? How do you get them as customers? uh, A variety of different ways, mostly through institutions. So schools or districts will realize either they can't find enough staff or they don't have a high-quality textbook or other learning materials, and so they will hire us. Um, to be a part of their curriculum solution. Sometimes we provide highly certified or highly um, educated certified teachers um, from that state to help in the instruction, um, and they do that online. But for the growing part of our business, um, we are replacing the textbook and other supplemental materials, um, and so not waiting down backpacks um, and giving them much more robust learning. So. You know, a lot of folks worry, how do you get speaking skills um, when you're doing an online curriculum? But if you go into any traditional classroom in the country, um, there are 20 kids in the class and one kid answers um, a question and then maybe a second kid answers a question. Online, every child has to speak um, and submit um, audio files. So we actually reach a much broader swath of students with speaking and listening skills, as well as a lot of authentic cultural materials. So, and then every summer, uh, last summer, we had nearly 800 students who studied in a four-week uh, brick-and-mortar immersion learning high school and middle school students. Here in Vermont, we had uh, two large academies and then three international academies, one in Beijing, one in Spain, and one in Quebec. Um, for kids who really want to leapfrog their peers and get a great cultural experience, but also a robust language acquisition experience for the summer. So in, in, your, in your basic software that's in schools, often a way to judge, uh, let's say, the difference between, uh, let's say, your software package and Rosetta Stone and Duolingo and traditional courses is how many hours is, the, is your program the equivalent of like let's say a regular uh yeah so we have i think it's 180 hours or 170 hours of instruction for high school so you hit on so you must have done some research or you're very lucky i generally am uh a little bit of both uh, me too me too so 
Uh, we actually are built specifically for the classroom, unlike Rosetta and Duolingo, who are more built for uh, the consumer audience. So we structure our classes to be, or our courses to be um, exactly similar, both in the amount of material um, as well as the types of activities. So we have graded assignments, we have mandatory um, recordings um, that you would expect to see in an education setting. Um, the biggest, uh, the biggest criticism we often get is we actually have too much material. Uh, so we put a lot of um, a lot of videos into our courses, and we allow students to go back and listen to them uh, over a long period of time. The videos and the audio that we use is native speakers at native paces. A lot of students aren't used to that. They're used to somebody really slowing down their speech in a classroom, but then they go to a country and nobody talks like that. Right. Um, so oftentimes students will need to develop and we help them to develop uh, strategies for how you can actually um, understand what people are saying to you um, at native paces by picking up the words you do know, negotiating meaning, taking visual cues. Um, so it's a really robust um, pedagogy that's based on the best practices that were developed by uh, Middlebury College's famed language school, which has been the international leader in language acquisition for over 100 years. So it's almost like I, I would argue your kind of um, framing point is that you offer an immersion experience as opposed to a shortcut experience. And it's, 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 active, it's aimed at academic excellence. So if you want to figure out how to, you know, uh, just say hello or find the bathroom in Italy, you can take somebody else's course. But if you want to be able to write and understand the culture um, of the many countries that speak a particular language, then our courses are much better designed. And if from a practical standpoint, you're a teacher um, who's using our tools to enrich your classroom, the fact that they're designed around an academic setting makes a huge difference. Um, you know, you have to be able to have assignments that students complete so that you can uh, figure out if they're learning the material. Um, those are sort of core principles in the courses we develop. So, so I want to um, reel back just a little bit. Uh, uh, 2003, uh, you're considering the run for governor again. You, you had been governor for, for two or so years, a little over two years. And uh, this this super rich guy comes on and says he wants to be governor and he's not going to do bake sales. He's going to spend $100 million of his own money. Um, what's... Even my Catholic family wasn't big enough to have bake sales right. that would uh, compete with Mitt Romney's tens of millions. You are right. So so what was like you, you it sounded like you really enjoyed the experience of being governor and you had a lot of impact and you dealt with a lot of very uh, important issues. But but of course, you were thinking there were many things yet to be done. Um, what was that decision like not to run against Mitt Romney? Gut wrenching. I can still feel I had a physical like I had a physical rock in my stomach. Um, but uh, back to your other uh, comment about you want to figure out how I had twins and a toddler. Um, 
at home. Um, my husband gave up his work life to allow me to serve um, in politics. And so I also was the sole breadwinner in our family and have an awesome family and a wonderful husband. Um, but politics doesn't make you rich. And I wasn't rich before I started. And so I had to face some really pragmatic realities. Um, first, if I didn't win, I would probably have been through a very ugly, uh, hard-fought battle that would make me less employable. And second, I wouldn't have a lot of time to find that job. And so at the end of the day, I made a really realistic, pragmatic decision that I was unlikely to win and I was much more likely uh, to lose and be in a position that would make it really hard for me to find meaningful work that would also feed my family and pay our mortgage. And so I stepped aside. Um, I feel so fortunate today, um, being you know 12 years from that decision and realizing how many opportunities I've had to continue to make an impact on issues I care about, um, but, you know, I won't lie, it was bitterly disappointing, um, but I am confident I did the right thing, and, um, you know, most people have very hard decisions they make professionally and personally in their life, and frankly, um, what was the most difficult, probably professional decision I ever made was not anywhere close to the most difficult thing I ever faced in my life. So you have to keep perspective. Well, and, and certainly you have to look at the, you know, there's impact in politics and there's impact in business where you're actually creating things that people are using. And if it's, if it's a good idea, then many people use it. So you're, you're CEO of Middlebury Interactive Languages. Now you have 200,000 people learning to speak in a globalized world through your software uh, that's an incredible thing, which which may have eventually more impact than than being governor. Absolutely, and the time and resources to you know make a difference, and because of that terrific job that I had way back when, um, I get to have wonderful uh, volunteer and professional experiences that not many people do. I am indeed a very very lucky person. But can I can I ask you a favor before we close this podcast? Sure. Can you just run for president this year? Because I'm not really <laughs> so like girls were joking because it seems like everybody can run and we are close to New Hampshire. But uh, no, I can't. Like, I don't like any. I mean, it's not like I hate them. Whoever they're all they're all like the same. Like, I feel like you would be a little different. Like, who, who, who? I don't know. If Actually, you... I love Jeb Bush and I understand the issue people have with his family um, in the name. But I hope um, that, you know, Students like the ones uh, that I uh, work with um, understand that you should look at everybody on their merits. And I think Jeb Bush was a great president. I think his priorities are right. I like that he's not a demagogue on certain issues that, um, you know, are uh, not that important to me and I think are deathly to the uh, Republican Party base. Um, so I, I think there's actually quite a few really good candidates out there. Mine is Jeb Bush, uh, but John Keith would make, I think, a great president. There are lots of good candidates. And, and let me ask you a, a, a naive political question, and this is on the Democratic side. 
Hillary Clinton has has spent so many years or even decades putting a machine into place. How is Bernie Sanders even like approaching her in the polls? Like what happened there? Uh, for exactly the same reason that Donald Trump and Ben Carson, people are really alienated from our political system right now. And there's a really important message um, around that for both parties and people who care about politics like me. Um, so I would say that, um, you know, anybody who's been engaged in politics needs to recognize and have a solution for how disengaged and angry uh, much of the electorate is. But he's and like Bernie he, Sanders definitely channeled people's anger on the left. Yeah, that's true. Who do you and and Trump? You would say Trump and Ben Carson are, are channeling it on the yeah, right. Yeah, probably even more Trump in a way. I mean, they yeah. oversimplify, but they certainly capture the mood and frustration. I think once folks start to actually think about uh, the serious problems that we face and what they we need to do to solve them, um, things will look very different. Well, uh, Governor Jane Swift, ex-Governor Jane Swift, uh, youngest governor ever, I think, and first female governor of Massachusetts, which is, you're a Republican in the most liberal state in the United States, uh, and now you're the CEO of Middlebury Interactive Languages. I really appreciate you coming on the show. It's been an honor to have you on here and, and, and put up with my interrupting and answering my questions. Thank you. Thanks very much, Jane. I will Alrighty. talk to you again. Bye. Bye-bye. For more from James, check out the James Altucher Show on the Stansberry Radio Network at stansberryradio.com. And get yourself on the free insiders list today. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. America. 